Help me flap my wings, y'all. Help me. folks. As always, I'm your host, Anthony Tyler. I appreciate you joining me. And uh, if you are tuning in from some of the crossover stuff I've done recently, like Where Did the Road Go? or What Magic Is This? Uh, you know, welcome, doubly, if you're new. We don't always cover explicitly paranormal or Fortean or esoteric stuff, esoteric in the occult sense, to be more specific. Um, but in the broadest sense of the word, it is always esoteric. And the recurring theme is always existential horror to some degree or another. Um, a third of it, it seems to be exploring the existential horror itself. Another third roughly seems to be combating uh, the existential horror and, you know, the tools of catharsis, if you will magic mysticism art things like that um and then there's some humor as well you know um i'll get into that i do have some announcements but this episode today is going to be delving into existential horror itself a bit more horror sometimes i don't enunciate that properly i think you get it though um I, you know before i get into those announcements little little teaser here I'm sure everyone listening to this show is familiar with the movie The Truman Show. Jim Carrey, Ed Harris, great movie. It's a classic for a reason. Would you believe me if I told you that in 1998, in Japan, for over a year, around 18 months, this really happened to a man, a 22-year-old Japanese man who was nicknamed Eggplant. Nasubi um, is how it was pronounced in Japanese. His real name, I looked up the pronunciation, uh, Tomoaki Homatsu. Now, you know, I've said before, in certain cases, I could give a fuck about proper pronunciation. When it's someone's name and it's not a historical figure that's already immortalized, uh, I definitely want to, or just like a passerby figure that is completely 
is completely unnecessary to the story, but definitely wanted to get that guy's name there. My brain just does not jive with with Japanese names, among others. It's just, you know, my brain is wired for English. Um, one of my pitfalls, I was not raised in a, like a bilingual school or anything. I was raised in Alaska. So, you know, <laughs> just there's the minimal things out there, even in the places like Anchorage where I was around. Even though there were Spanish immersion programs, it just wasn't me. It wasn't my lot in life. I also, you know, not that great at guitar. I could strum some chords. That's it. I wish I was better, though. Anyway, Anasubi was seriously the real life Truman incarnate. And it's horrific. This is a true story of existential horror. It seems like a dystopian nightmare, but it's it already happened. You know, a couple decades ago, almost. What am I talking about? It happened almost three decades ago. And this man spent 18 months in basically solitary confinement with nothing. He was naked the whole time. Didn't even have food. All he had, we'll get into it more, was the ability to write into Japanese sweepstakes, which there was an, a, like, an insane abundance of at the time. It was a cultural phenomenon going on. And he had to survive off that. And he had to make $10,000 worth of products alone from sweepstakes. It took a long time. And he lost a bit of his mind. A lot went on here. How did this happen? What were the ramifications? What went on during this process? Well, we'll get into it all. There's a lot um, of source material here. Even though it's been around for a while, it's been covered well. Uh, this is something that is just so mind-boggling. I couldn't not cover it here on the show. The a, a major prerequisite of existential horror is just um, a slack-jawed mystification. Just what the fuck? It's not just horrifying. It's confusing and mind-boggling. How did we even get here? This is so far removed from ordinary life. How did anybody, you know, what were the contracts? How did this fucking happen? Firstly, before we get more into that, I do have some announcements. Bear with me. Bear with me. I have a link tree now. So you can find all this here. I'll post that at the bottom uh, in the show description. I'm trying to put myself more out there. You know, the basic things. Now that the show's been around a little while longer and I do have some material. Um, I got a YouTube page up. I am not putting podcasts up on there yet. YouTube has this, uh, the whole annoying copyright thing. Doesn't matter if uh, I have agreements with people to play their music, YouTube will still demonetize it. You know, they demonetize a lot of uh, hush words. YouTube is a shit show to deal with. So what I did do, however, is a lot of these skits, these commercials from the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Tippy Patson, uh, some of the stuff that Steve Berg and his quote-unquote friend Jason Tortilla did on the show. You can find video bits of this on YouTube. You can also find it on Instagram. I'm on Instagram now. Black Hoodie Alchemy on both. What else? Um, I was recently added to Bullhorn, the app, the podcast distribution listening app. Um, check out. You can find for free on the Mind Escape YouTube page now. The uh, the UFO documentary I was in, I was featured in, uh, as within, so without, from DMT, from UFOs to DMT, which was again 
winner of the People's Choice Award at the uh, UFO Expo in Roswell this year, 2023. That was pretty sweet. It's been received well, and it, there was uh, previously a pay barrier up. You can now go check that out. They are looking into further streaming opportunities, but yeah, in the meantime, yeah, it's free. Just go go jump on that. What else? If TikTok is your jam, I'm not putting philosophy up there, but the same YouTube videos that I have also on the Instagram page, I do have up on TikTok. Um, TikTok is pretty useful for certain video editing purposes. So I actually started using that um, for those editing purposes and it's already in the app. So I might as well just fucking upload it. Is there anything else? Done some updates to the website as well. You can now go find a bio page for the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the crazy group of rednecks in the Everglades that are too dumb to be a cult, but too organized to just be dudes chilling. And they are not me doing various impressions with my friends, um, but they have been received pretty damn well. Uh, you know, Admittedly, they're a hard thing to promote, but the fact that uh, the, like the baseline, like the return audience, the Black Hoodie Alchemy heads out there, that are tuning into every episode. Everyone, it's been a very warm reception and I'm glad to see it snowballing and continuing. People have really been enjoying the videos. I have a lot of fun. That's one of those things where, you know, I could have these conversations unrecorded with people. You know, I could have these conversations outside of a podcast setting, even though podcast facilitates these things, but I could never do these, uh, these ridiculous characters. Um, and, you know, that's not a direct admittance that these are me. No, I'm not, you know, I just happen to be out of the room at any given time these interviews go down. But that being said, that's just something I couldn't do in real life. And it's a lot of fun. Um, so I'm glad it's uh, it's gotten a lot of genuine laughs. That's it warms my heart. Because it's not all doom and gloom and existential terror. Sometimes we have to just laugh at things. And sometimes things are just fucking funny. Okay. Okay. Enough of all that. You got to get it out of the way sometimes. And I've done a lot of work to try and, you know, just put myself out there a little more in ways that aren't taxing or detracting of the creative process, but ways where I could just dibble dabble in the whole butterfly effect of the internet a little bit better. So, you know, help me flap my wings, y'all. Help me. Okay. So here's the story of Nasubi. Let's get into this shit. This is fucking bonkers. This just feels uh, an episode befitting of more curse words than usual, too, because this is just an episode deserving of F-bombs. This is crazy, and I can't believe I'd never heard of it before. Firstly, let's recall, you know, the state of affairs of Japan in this context in 1998. Um, some very specific cultural norms at the time were the aforementioned uh, sweepstake craze. Lots of sweepstakes going on. Uh, there was also, um, you know, Japan is known for its crazy game shows. Um, some of the game shows I found while doing this research were um, that aired at one time or another, uh, Candy or Not Candy, where contestants bite household items any kind of household item in hopes that it might be chocolate. It's either chocolate or just like a, like a picture I saw was a man biting a corner of a picture frame. And I don't think that was chocolate in the picture. 
Uh, so there's that. There's uh, slippery stairs where people try to climb slippery stairs. And then there's cute or get pie, which is where a bunch of sleeping women lay down. It sounds so sensual in a weird way, but like, like borderline because it's nothing explicit. This is women laying down and then they wake up from a nap. And if they don't look acute enough as deemed by the judges, when they wake up from this nap, they get a pie to the face. I don't know what's going on in Japan. But that stuff is all crazy tame compared to Susunu Denpa Shonen, which apparently uh, translates to do not proceed crazy youth, like a warning that the crazy youth are what you should not proceed about. Uh, and it was a Japanese reality show that aired between 98 and 2002. Uh, and it did crazy shit. Stuff that would not be allowed in America. Or most countries. And it was, uh, it was very controversial when it happened in Japan, but was not uh, banned. You know, it, it got millions and millions of viewers. <clears throat> and in many ways set trends that we will now see on the internet uh, very common. So some of these things that the show did, well, and, and the basic gist was that it would take aspiring young comedians in their early 20s and make them do outrageous shit. Shit that makes, it, it, it takes anything you would imagine is within the realm of legality and just completely, you know, sets it ablaze. Um, for instance, there was a, a, a desert Island escape bit where two comedians were put on a desert Island with no food, uh, no clue where they were. And were only told that, uh, they needed to build a raft to set sail and reach Tokyo. Uh, so they were on this desert Island for apparently four months and they really did attempt it. I don't think they made it. Another dude attempted to, uh, hitchhike from south africa to norway um the contestants were forbidden to use travel money and uh and so they faced starvation and dehydration and weather conditions <laughs> unbelievable what else the other big thing they did was they would like lock people in rooms and only give them food when their favorite baseball team won again yeah you know this this stuff shouldn't have been legal and it shouldn't have been deemed entertainment. The real sick part, one of the hu the the biggest sick, there's so many sick parts to this. One of the most glaring aspects is uh, is that all these would be found in the comedy section in Japan. These people were all comedians. It was reality TV. It was meant to be comedy. But it's abusive, psychological torture. Those things were just, um, you could say to some level, um, maybe there's some Darwin Award factor in there in a couple cases. But, and I don't know the extent of all these cases, but in the ones I do know, these people were very manipulative and they did not give all the details. So they really just um, gave you minimal information baited you with a bunch of fame and did shit like leave you on a desert island so as it goes in january of 1999 there was an audition for a, a bunch of young comedians 
and they were, you know, like drawing straws basically because it was said that the only talent needed in this competition was luck. And um, good old Nasubi, soon to be known as, uh, was apparently the luckiest. Uh, and what his luck got him was a reality show challenge. And there's there's some interviews you can find translated. I'll have that in the show notes as well. One particular interview um, that he gives, I think it was to NPR. And he talks about why he did some of this. And uh, firstly, it has to do with the promise of fame and fortune. You're not really getting money out of this. Um, and there weren't even contracts signed. The whole idea was that you would receive a claim. You know, you would be instantly recognized as a hit star and, you know, your comedy career would take off. And then you would be in working business with the network and the sky's the limit, but they kept it vague purposefully vague enough to be legal enough to manipulate and vague enough to, I think, let people's imaginations run away with it as well. And so what they told Nasubi is that what they told Nasubi is this, you stay in this room, this small, like studio apartment situation, and you can't have anything except what you win in these sweepstakes we're going to give you you know you don't even get a bed you get a radio you get sweepstakes um you know like index cards and envelopes for entries into sweepstakes and pencils and you get running water and you know electricity and these things but you don't even get food they had like a fail safe to, and they had a doctor around occasionally to make sure he didn't die but they were not interested whatsoever in making sure he maintained peak physical condition. In fact, they seem to be very interested in the opposite. So they were prepared to not let this man die, I think. But obviously, take into scale the grand scheme of how far a person can go from peak physical condition to not dying. You know, I mean, just as example, people survived concentration camps. That doesn't mean they were uh, good conditions. So, and this was, you know, I, I hesitate. I'm not trying to equate this to a concentration camp, but psychologically, fair, at least fairly similar, psychologically speaking. Uh, and uh, we'll unpack this more here. So, and he, he wasn't even, he wasn't even allowed clothing, like I said. And the, the, the sickest part and the thing that makes this very Truman Show-esque is that he thought that this was going to be pre-recorded. This was going to be a televised experience, an experiment that it would be, you know, he would be working with the producers, give all this footage. And when it was done, they would edit it up to make into some sort of, you know, releasable product as like a season or whatever. Um, what they did instead was they did it like basically live you know uh, th th there was a certain amount of delay because it was edited uh you know i was thinking not to be crass but if you're if you're doing this to a person like how much are you leaving in there and thankfully you know i haven't come across anything that was like 
you know, he was never caught like jerking it on camera or anything. You know, they had the decency to give a guy a modicum of privacy, I believe, um, or, or at least didn't put a camera in the bathroom. I'm not an expert on the mechanics of this situation, but that was pretty much where that was the only that was the only line drawn. Everything else was left on the table. Um, and it, it, the only, in fact, the only other censorship <laughs> was the 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 eggplant emoji that censored his crotch front to back. Because the only um, the only kind of clothing he got the entire time was a pair of women's underpants, and on some level, we'll go into some of his day to day. But on some level, this begs to uh, the, this begs the question: What? How much of this was staged? Uh, Nasubi did not, you know, he he was a very genuine, real person, and we'll give you some of the updates on his life after this. Uh, he's doing very well, thank God. But you know, he did all these sweepstakes, and he didn't get one single piece of underwear, not one. He got so much random shit, and um. So it, it, yeah, I don't know. There's something fishy there and very dehumanizing about it. Uh, to say the least, like it's dehumanizing on its face. And then the more you get into it, the, we're just left without, we're left with seemingly no redeemable qualities whatsoever, except the sheer, you know, Victor Frankl style logotherapeutic achievement of Nasubi to, um, overcome this and still be a functioning member of society afterward and take it on the chin like a champion. So he was being live streamed naked to upwards of 17 million people at a time. Not just that, but he was writing in his personal diaries, which were taken at night and made uh, and copied, which were then produced into best-selling books. I shit you not. And this whole time, this guy has no idea. You know, he's even being used to the the relief that he experiences finding food from the sweepstakes wins when he's starving for a week or two at a time, or maybe eating dog food for a couple weeks. Those moments of relief of, I think it was eating ramen noodles, becomes an advertisement to the public to eat these noodles. A, a true existential dystopian nightmare. What the fuck? How could this possibly happen? But it did. And you, you want to know something? This guy was in there for almost 18 months. Just let that sink in. And it's even worse than you could imagine. It's not just... Uh, you just wait. You just wait. Let's talk about some things that happened to him here. Well, at first, he, um, you know, he already started getting a little skinny. Um, all he had to do for like 10 hours a day was fill out entry forms to sweepstakes. He obviously, as you would, you kind of stop shaving. I don't even think he had a razor in there. Um, he ends up getting some jelly. He ends up getting some rice. He gets some meat here and there. Uh, but this is... This is spread out over weeks and weeks. You know, sometimes he goes days without getting anything. Uh, he'll get a, a small television set, but he can't 
he can't plug it up to anything. He doesn't have any cable. He doesn't have anything. So he could check out white noise. Awesome. Um, at one point, he does get an exercise bike. As I mentioned, he gets like a thong. Um, he gets some posters here and there. Um, at, at one point, though, several occasions, but the first time he uh, he runs out of food. He doesn't really have anything. He finally ends up getting some rice, but he has nothing to cook it with. So for millions of people in Japan watch as this man weeps and then proceeds to eat crunchy rice because he just needs something. He needs some sort of food. And this is reality TV. Just the sound of him eating the dry rice alone is haunting. Can't imagine what it did to his digestive system. This poor fucking guy. So this ingenious MacGyver motherfucker ends up um, taking the empty jelly packs, like pretty much the only other thing he has, and putting the rice in there with some water and setting it next to the stove and just setting it there for a while. And man, just that, you know, vaguely hydrated, not even properly heated up rice from the jelly packet brought tears to his eyes. It was actual nourishment. His entire life had been reduced to this. And you know what? Um, I think we're going to have to step into a little bit of a commercial break here. But um, don't worry, we're going to wrap this story up. We still have a bit more to talk about. That's for damn sure. Don't forget, this is Black Hoodie Alchemy here on the Fringe FM. I'm Anthony Tyler, and uh, we're talking about Nasubi and the Japanese Truman Show of 1998. Slashing foes can't bash your noses on trash and poses Rapping when they lack in focus Blasting open Any microphone I'm past it's over Rast Jehovah Hope bad the lacks for all the rats and cobras Not a drill From haunted hills to Victoria Conscious mind of the warrior Lyrical sword of slaughter You're dead up in jail Is there a heaven or hell? Don't bark shots and clutch shots like Kevin McHale Ain't the words I know It's the world I know Wrapped up in rap lyrics So tight with words that flow Might spark ya Might charge ya The night stalker Graffiti Write raw rhymes and leave your life all tough You like vultures falling for the physical bait Share the physical fate, you the visible fate While my rhymes are more lost in the digital state Hello, is this thing on? Okay, please edit this out for me. Um, but uh, my name is Steve Buscemi, formerly known as uh, Jefferson Tillamook Slinger. As many of you know, I am a big fan of the Highlander movies and television show. But many of you may not know how confusing and fucking stupid that the, uh, that the whole uh, storyline is, and I'm here to tell you, as a public service announcement to all them them youngins out there that don't understand the Highlander franchise, it's okay. You're not alone. And 
If it makes you feel any better, basically the director's cut of the first movie and the TV show are the only things you really need to pay attention to. Everything else is just retconned bullshit. And uh, it's a mockery. Um, so just forget about, you know, the second and third movies and all those sci-fi channel movies. It was all not good. Um, it just served to confuse people and even the people involved with those projects have pretty much said don't think of those as an official story so don't worry maybe you can rest easy at night but the fact of the matter is the Highlander series might be perhaps the biggest botch in all of nerd culture history um, uh, next to things like uh, the movie Jumper with Hayden Christensen could have been great was not very great also uh die hard was a christmas movie and i am a classy movie critic <clears throat> oh god consciousness bloody infinite potential peering into the mind of the gods wanking off a dolphin Hello everybody, it's your good old friend Silverback Commando, um, studier of a uh, NASA funded scientist and uh, dolphin wanker extraordinaire uh, John Lilly. Um, a true story, you can look it up for yourself if you like to and uh, I'm just here to share with some of you uh, the wisdom from my notebook. Right, I got a lot of good uh, bits and pieces of poetry and um, uh, philosophical knowledge if you will. And I'd like to share some of it with you. The death quiets universal bliss. Culture shapes formless destiny. Non-judgment expresses intricate timelessness. Oh, I like this one. It's very poetic. Perceptual reality uh, corresponds to precious chaos. Indeed. Experiential truth is rooted in cosmic abstract beauty. Indeed, indeed. Our consciousness serves visible choices. And uh, so true, mate. And I'll end it on this one. This is my favorite. Good health is the womb of dimensionless knowledge. Indeed, um, you know, I bloody hope you learned a thing or two. Reading from me notebook here. No, I appreciate. I sure do appreciate you having a bit of a, of a meditation with me. It's been a good old time. Uh, take it easy, everybody. It's been uh, your silverback commando, and uh, don't forget that. Um, matter unfolds into personal genes. Don't forget it. Urge me, team. It's me, Apex Monsoon, and I am a cosmic ghost pirate. I'm a little pissed at you all. Um, no one has been buying any of my 
fine quality, handcrafted, spiced Caribbean rum. I even put the good stuff in there. It was, uh, the spice was that kind of synthetic marijuana that you would get from the gas stations back in the day. The really good stuff. And no one bought it. God damn you people. God damn you people. You know, I've been, uh, to sail the seven cosmic seas and I've done a whole lot of cool shit. And I don't need this. But, um... You know, all the other guys have cool things to talk about. Like, Bill Hicks is Alex Jones. What? That's pretty sweet. And also, I don't have a notebook of cool shit to talk about. So, in the meantime, I'm just selling everyone else's stuff. That's right. You can get Silverback Commandos, Dolphin Glue, and Hair Gel at a discount price. And you can also get my Cosmic Space Pirate Dolphin Tarot Deck that no one seemed to buy. And you could get all the bottles of my Caribbean Spiced Pirate Rum, seasoned with the K2 Spice from the gas stations of your matey, of your. And uh, you can also buy um, all the Walkman and VHS tapes that your little sailor heart desires of muscle combat, alligator combat safety, and hook-hand training tactics, and I mostly taught him all of that shit, so it's basically mine. But you know what? I, uh, like I said, I don't need this. I'm pretty cool without all, all of, uh, all of the, the, the money and accolades that I was hoping to get from you, so don't even worry about it. Arg! God damn it, I'm a pirate anyway! <laughs> Salutations, Protendo. It is I, Muscle Tornado. And as always, I just finished polishing off a sweet, sweet bowl of dimethyltryptamine. And uh, before that, I just finished watching uh, the new Fast and Furious movie. Uh, well, let me tell you, I was astonished to find how much sacred geometry and um, important esoteric symbols were found throughout the Fast and Furious movies, Broham. Uh, so listen to me when I tell you that um, I'm extremely convinced now that uh, Vin Diesel is the true shepherd of the Aeon of Horus. You see, um, the Aeon of Horus is all about finding one's true will. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Pitch Black, um, but it's pretty cool. And uh, Vin Diesel, he can't see in the light. It's crazy. So go see Pitch Black, dude. Um, and then go see uh, the new Fast and Furious movie and learn, um, go to YouTube and learn how to do gematria, you know, uh, uh, ancient numerology. And uh, we'll, uh, it, it'll, it, all of this will make perfect sense. Uh, this has been Muscle Tornado, over and out. Factory is
back to Black Hoodie Alchemy, folks. Thanks for sticking with me through that commercial break there. And we are continuing our conversation about the real-life Japanese Truman Show of 1998 and what this massive, disgusting undertaking that poor Nasubi was tricked into. So, um, as you may recall, before the break there, he's gone through several bouts of starvation. You know, the best things he's found are rice. Um, he has a, a small TV that's of absolutely no use to him. Um, he ends up getting a PlayStation game of a railroad simulator, like PS1, that he can't use. He gets some posters, some random bullshit. This man is slowly losing his mind. No entertainment other than the radio. And remember... He has a goal that he has to reach. That's the only way he can get out of here. He has to earn $10,000 worth of material. So even if it's useless, it does add to the dollar sign. The more expensive, the better. But you also need shit like food. And, you know, things to keep you sane in there. The whole point of this reality TV show was, can one man survive off of only sweepstakes? uh prizes and um yes um as i mentioned before the break at one point he runs out of the rice that was his staple that he was cooking in jelly packets by setting next to the stove he had uh he started starving he went for upwards of two weeks without food at times and then he finally got some dog food and this disheveled, naked man that was reduced to this animalistic lifestyle because of a so-called reality TV show is forced to eat dog food for nearly two weeks until he finally gets a huge, massive bag of rice. And when he does this, he weeps. It's like the Holy Grail. He weeps. In fact, every time he gets something useful, he ecstatically dances in a way that you surely wouldn't have got, and it, not to the same extent at the very least, if he had known that he was being broadcast to everyone. At another point, he ends up getting a toy dolphin, and that becomes, you know, his Wilson, like from the movie Castaway. I can't remember what he names it. But I believe um, one of his nicknames for it is Sensei. It's so fucking sad, man. And this is labeled as comedy at the time in Japan. Might still be. I don't know. I've never been to Japan. So he started this in January of 98. By June, uh, the show had become so popular that people had found out where he was staying. So these people... Uh, the producers of the show, like they were running Guantanamo Bay. They come in in the middle of the night with flashlights and they blindfold them and they, they drive them around for hours and then they bring them to another place with all his stuff. And they say, this is for, uh, you know, a change in feng shui and a change in good luck, you know, better luck. But really it was, you know, to keep him hidden from the media. Um, There were other times where, you know, whether it was bait from the producers to fuck with him or just sheer accident, you know, 
torturous whims of nature and the butterfly effect. Uh, at least one specific in- instance I remember where uh, a, a food delivery guy comes to the door with some fresh, delicious action and realizes that this guy has no money and it also seems to be the wrong address, so he just walks away. Can you imagine being so close and starving so much? There are other places that will go into this in a more play-by-play context. Uh, There are some documentaries you can find. Uh, We've talked about the tortures that this guy went through. Um, Instead of the traditional play-by-play, you know, we looked at, um, in a nutshell, the things he endured. And like I said, this was... Uh, this initial where he had to get like a million yen or something, which uh, equated to $10,000 in sweepstakes earnings alone. It took him the better part of a year. And we're going to talk about contracts and things in a moment, but let's wrap up this story and then we will dig into some of the semantics a bit more. He eventually, he eventually earns the winnings. Okay. It's a wonder that he stuck it out this whole time. And it's a wonder that he won enough food to keep going. Also begs the question that I brought up earlier. How much of this was the producers fucking with him? We'll never truly know. But we do know that the producers, as sick as they were, and this is an angle of the sickness, they were very interested in letting it play out on its own terms. So I do believe that they um, minimally interfered with it. But I could totally see two basic uh, principles to you know, generate better ratings in the way that they wanted it, uh, to not give him clothes, and to make sure he had at least some kinds of food, like sending him a giant bag of rice eventually after eating a lot of dog food. So, you know, because it didn't, it's just, I don't know. I don't know. But in any case, when he wins, they take him to a theme park in South Korea. They take him on a whole, um, just like a -a make-a-wish sort of day. He gets to hang out in this theme park. He gets to eat whatever he wants. He buys all sorts of, you know, he gets some clothing. He gets um, a big pot of kimchi, which he's real psyched about. He was probably craving that the whole time, I bet. Um, and he has a he's a wonderful day. And what did they do? They blindfold him, drive him around, and bring him to an apartment in South Korea. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. And then they tell him to do the whole thing over, except this time, you won the competition. Congratulations. But this time, you have to earn enough sweepstake winnings to buy a plane ticket home. Regular class. Coach. He's reluctant. He's not happy. But he's also been broken down a bit. And there's some vague contractual elements at this point. And apparently, these producers were master manipulators. So he relents and he goes through with it. Well, what happens over some months? He he continues this process. Let's remember, he also doesn't have any money at the moment. 
who's been doing this for so long, and he's in a different country. That's why they did this. They're motherfuckers. He gets the he gets the the payment. He gets the amount of dollars in earnings for the the coach ticket. So what do they do? They bump it up to business, which is a substantial amount more. It takes a little bit of time. He earns that. What do they do next? They bump it up to first class. What happens when he earns that? They try to give him a vacation. They say, no, don't go home. Take a vacation, which they'll probably end up putting you in another. Because I think it was Paris. You know, it's it's not relevant to the story um, in the long run. So I'm not going to look it up here, but I I believe it was Paris. They were trying to get him to go to next where they probably would have locked him up in another apartment. And he said, no, no, I got the most expensive fucking ticket I could home. Send me home. So they bring him back to Japan. They take off the blindfold. He's in another apartment, speechless, broken, just a damn near like a prisoner of war at this point. He doesn't argue Nasubi. He just starts taking off his clothes and he sits down at the table, ready to continue this closed loop, never-ending hell that he is experiencing. And then the fucking walls come down around him like it's a present. God damn it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the mind fuck that's going on right now? The walls, they just fall down, the cardboard walls, and as the uh, the ceiling is lifted like a jar, like a lid. And all of a sudden you're in a studio. You're in a, 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 a live studio audience televised to the world. And you're naked. Cause that's part of the, the deal. That's what has to happen. And this, and this is when it all hits him. He has some female show producers come up and, and explain to him what's happened. Explain to him how, he he didn't have to wait to be seen by an audience. He had been seen by an audience this entire time, upwards of 17 million people at a time. And as I mentioned before, he had been used in very successful food advertisements. Um, his journals had become bestsellers. And all this was uh, framed in the name of comedy. He was shocked. You, you'll need to look at his face. It's all recorded. And his first concern was the fact that his naked body has been displayed this entire time, even even with it being censored. It's still such a violation among so many others. And he had trouble understanding how that was even allowed. But, you know, eventually he made it out. Um, what are some of the ramifications of this? Well, the poor guy uh, couldn't wear clothing for like a year. I mean, he did, but it was to the point where it was uncomfortable for that period of time. You know, it was sweaty. He had gotten used to not wearing it. Um, He had trouble with, you know, conversations with people. His comedy career was fucked because he couldn't even hold regular conversations with people, let alone get up on stage, which I believe he did try. This guy's life was taken away from him. But he comes back. He comes back swinging over time. Um, he does some incredible things. As I believe I mentioned earlier, Nasubi is from Fukushima. And especially since uh, the nuclear meltdown, you know, the power plant disaster of Fukushima in 2011, um, Nasubi has done a great deal 
to raise awareness about the radiation climate. You know, it's not a Chernobyl completely evacuated place. Uh, Fukushima still has people there today. It's a, it's a, that's a whole topic in and of itself that Nasubi has dedicated himself to, um, as well as just, um, inspiration for his people. He did things like climbed Mount Everest successfully in 2016. After three failed attempts to reach the top, he finally did it. This guy is a real inspiration. He's, you know, he's done, he's had some acting roles. He is, um, a certain... He is a certain presence to this day in the Japanese media. Um, and he has done that, you know, in a a motivational sort of way without being like an on-the-nose, in-your-face Tony Robbins sort of motivational speaker. I mean, God bless this guy. What a fucking champion. Absolute salute to the maximum degree to Nasubi here. He also embraces the nickname. He knows that he can't get away from it. That's why I don't mind calling him that. It sure is easier for me to pronounce anyway, uh, but he does embrace it. And here's some quotes. Um, there was an interview given by him. There was an interview done with him that I found. I'll have that in the show notes. Uh, I basically, to the majority, not all, but the majority of his answers, I just kind of took them out um, and I, I read through it. The questions didn't really need to be in there. If anything, it reads something like a mission statement encapsulation of what happened and what he's done now. So I'm just going to, this is all Nasubi himself I'm gonna in years later, like at this point, not that long ago. Everything was harsh and every day was like hell back then. It was like the current lockdown, the the COVID lockdown, but all by myself. And there was a pressure that I wasn't allowed to go outside. I couldn't get food and clothes until winning one from the sweepstakes. Uh, I even had to eat only dog food I'd gotten from the prize contest for a while. No bedding was provided either, uh, so I used a cushion as a pillow, folding it in half. But the hardest thing was not to be able to see and talk with anyone. My mental condition was at, it worse, was at its worst. This is translated, so I might stumble over these because I, I'm... I have to correct this as I'm going. Um, I was like, why only me? Why do I have uh, to do all these things? I'd rather die than feel like this. Every day, I just did the same thing, writing hundreds of postcards, which got me down more mentally uh, rather than physically. Although I seemed like I was having fun uh, most of the time on the edited show, to me, it was full of pain. Meanwhile, it felt good when I was getting close to the goal. Uh, winning prize, winning a prize gave me uh, a small piece of hope every time, which made me manage to get through a year and three months. God damn. Yeah, so 15 months total. For me, the standard of happiness now is low. Like, compared to sweepstakes days when I had to eat dog food, I'm happy with even one of human, one meal of human food a day. It's fine without side dishes. Now, in the stay home situation, many people. Um, maybe having a difficult time um, pursuing their standard of happiness and keeping it as high as usual. So lowering the standard a little bit would work. That's a funny way to phrase it, but it's very Buddhist. It's very like Zen of him, ultimately. And I, I, I love it. 
Of course, uh, the current situation is different from the one I was in two decades ago. But um, when thinking about the circumstance uh, that the battle against the coronavirus outbreak is viewed as an actual war in some other countries, giving up on going out for a while would not be a big deal. Um, Okay, yeah, there's a a little little choppy in the sentence there, but um, more, you know, elaboration of that Zen sort of mentality. Also, if we think about the people who are desperately trying hard on the front line, such as the ones uh, working for medical and nursing facilities, financial and IT services, and logistics and transportation companies to protect our society, we need to be patient to reduce their burdens. And I think we also desperately need to behave properly to protect the people around us. We need to be more thoughtful, not like it's okay as long as I am okay. By being deprived of freedom, all of a sudden, many people must be frustrated with the inconvenience, but staying in a house for one month or two months won't kill you. I proved it in a in a sense by surviving from the days being locked up for a year and three months. Yeah, some of this might be dated now, but I, I this is one of the only interviews I found printed with him, so every bit of this explains his mindset and how he's come to terms with it, so I find it super relevant, you know, regardless and I stand behind what he's saying about um, the COVID protocol. Obviously, that's a hot button thing. And I know intelligent people that really didn't want anything to do with protocol. I think that's a bit of an oversight, um, individually speaking. I think um, you know he laid it out best. Even if you know, I don't, I don't explicitly trust big pharma. I'll just say that outright. But. There's also common decency and um, you know respect, like common respect, and just you know without you don't have to compromise your own morals, but you certainly shouldn't be compromising other people's situations in general. And I don't want to get political, really. You know, fuck that. You can find that elsewhere. Not from me. Uh, there's plenty of political bullshit out there. Uh, I just, you know, figured I'd elaborate a little bit. Here he goes on to talk about um, 311, which was the the earthquake and tsunami that caused the Fukushima nuclear disaster. After 311, I wanted to find something I could do to repay my home prefecture, Fukushima, along with uh, Tohoku. I thought that maybe by attending restoration events and playing a role as one of the leading people, I could help attract attention to Fukushima or make a chance to get rid of suffering from harmful rumors. And that if people in Fukushima saw me trying hard, maybe they could feel empowered. That was what I was, that was when I was told, uh, there should be something only you can do. Uh, that's what you should find. And I was also recommended to take a prayer trip. Uh, so I visited 88 temples in Shikoku. Wow. Props to him. Beautiful man right here. Um, although with no experience of mountaineering or trekking, I finished it twice uh, as fast as normal people. Then I was told again, you are probably good at climbing mountains, which is one of the reasons uh, why I went for Everest. And after some other things happened, my decision was made to aim for the mountain. I thought that mental restoration would also be important, as well as financial and physical support. 
Um, there was the time when I was turned down for sponsorship since it was an individual project and contained a possibility that someone might lose their life. Um, or I was criticized that I was trying, um, you know, going for fame or piggybacking, but I kept going forward for the mental restoration that that could encourage the people of Fukushima or Tohoku uh, by me trying hard. We tried three times and each time an accident happened, uh, such as an avalanche, an earthquake, and we had to give up our plan against our will. Many times I thought it was the end, but thanks to the support of the Fukushima people, I could stay strong. And I ended up thinking that I could do more compared to the harshness of my sweepstakes days. Um, it may be a little too much to say that the climbing was or uh, the current coronavirus situation uh, situation is the um, mind training, but my past experience um, helped me a lot. Okay, he's saying there might not be a direct equivalent, but my past experience helped me a lot. Which is just that alone. That's the point I was going to make, e even with that clarification that he made right there. The fact that he would even compare enduring that fucking sweepstake to uh, preparing him for Everest is, wow, God damn. That was, this was his Buddha Bodhi tree moment. This guy might be, you know, he, I, I, he, I don't know if he's fully enlightened. I'm not even trying to make that claim, but like this guy is uh, much further along the the proverbial enlightenment path than so many people. Like this guy is on some on some real Buddhist levels. Whew. Wow. I'm I'm genuinely inspired. I know this story, but going through it uh, and reading it in this way you come across details differently or they hit you in a more involved way and fucking a man what a champion so he talks about traveling and wearing his traditional japanese coat um outside of Fuku uh, outside of japan in general as a way of supporting fukushima and his culture um some people over there in the places he traveled in the west uh, asked me what is it you know about the coat and i would explain and then they would say, are, are there any people li still living in Fukushima? Um, or no one must live there, right? Anybody? And that made me feel that to the outside world, uh, Fukushima's clock had stopped since the tsunami and the earthquakes. And I admit I was one of those people. I knew there were people living on the outskirts. I knew it wasn't quite Chernobyl desolation, but yeah, Fukushima is still happening. It's still going on, um, the people, the, the life, the citizens, in spite of the calamity. It goes on, uh, probably many people overseas still think that way. Uh, that's why I believe we need to keep sending messages. I visited the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in 2017 with the thought that I might find a future for Fukushima to aim for. By getting permission, tourists can visit the Unit 4 building which exploded in the accident. What? And about hundreds of thousands of people go and see the place of the negative legacy. What the fuck? I didn't know people went into the actual building. Um, and I saw workers walking around while smoking cigarettes as if there was nothing wrong with them, with it, with it. Uh, which made me think that the three decades um, changed the situation so much. I visited the uh, Fukushima nuclear power plant one on a regular basis, like once or twice a year, or no, I, I also visit 
so at this point still actively doing so um and these people take proper precautions they have to wear certain things but um i believe at the very least i know for a fact they always have uh radiation meters on them because um they're not trying to go into places that are going to give them radiation poisoning um you know they're still might be getting low level radiation poisoning in the grand scheme of things but generally it's considered safe now um and even the stuff that goes into the higher levels it's nothing compared to what happened during the meltdown N- nothing at all but still fucking wild it's not like a a risk free zone and it is wild that the people of fukushima are still there um i'm not sure if i would be there to be honest with you but um i fully support any celebration of the culture and emphasis in you know their inspiration and motivation you know if you want to stay there stay there and more power to you you know fix you up your home i just don't blame anybody for leaving so um through my power plant through my power plant trips i saw a possibility that fukushima can change the world's perspective from negative to positive it would take time but it may be possible that fukushima will eventually succeed uh to dismantle the power plant and open their study results um that would draw the world's attention to the public i started as a comedian but originally entered into the entertainment industry to be a comedy actor my purpose of climbing everest after the great earthquakes was not mountaineering itself but to bring a smile to someone it is difficult to define my career but if i had to say it would be uh to make things happen or live up to things someone expected uh my career of nasubi to achieve as much as possible okay he wants to live up to people to the potential motivation that people see in him because he is a public figure um i would like to stand by what people want for me as close as possible by searching the things that can bring a smile to many people what i really want to be uh maybe found out maybe found after thoroughly pursuing those things hmm. i was born and raised in fukushima prefecture and am connected to all three areas of the prefecture because my father is from iwaki my mother is from uh aju misato machi sorry everybody that can't be right um <laughs> on the house i was uh in the house i was raised in is in fukushima city since my background has elements of each area fukushima is so important to me for those who live in this prefecture i would like to keep sending messages that can make them smile or empowered and to stay close to fukushima so let's liven up fukushima together and i'm looking forward to your continuous support it would be great if i could get long time support like my long shaped face <laughs> well played um it <laughs> I will uh, support Fukushima as long as possible. And currently, or at least at the time of this in the last couple of years, and I, as far as I understand, he still is, uh, Nasubi is designated as the ambassador of the Fukushima ex- uh, Tourism Exchange um, Prefecture. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of a garbled title, but it sounds like he is the ambassador 
of the the city of Fukushima of tourism and and at like dealing with public image and things, which sounds beautiful. I I, I love to hear it. He's also an ambassador of Mountain Day, which is a national uh, mountaineering holiday, apparently. Um, and he is a um, and he's involved in the the community in a variety of different ways. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. He fucking nailed it. That's the way you come back from a tragedy like that. Damn. And I mean, what a lovely high note to end on, honestly. After all the true, genuine existential horror. The last thing I'll say is this. Um, it's very curious that you can hear this um, in the This American Life interview, which I believe is like an NPR affiliated thing. Um, that was in 2014. Um, it is a translator, so you can hear Nasubi, and it's one of those deals where his voice goes lower and then the translator comes in. So it's a well done interview in real time that you don't just have to read. And what they do on top of that is they actually get a little bit of a recorded interview translated with the 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 creator of this uh a fucked up do not proceed crazy youth reality tv show that did this to nasabi and uh and so many others i don't remember the guy's name and honestly fuck him what a piece of shit um i do not uh condone this guy seems like a weird sociopath but i will say he's either um there's a chance he's got some sort of humanity um but i'm not completely convinced it could all be an act he met with nasubi at one point and he met as he met with other people uh that were contestants on the show and he listened to nasubi's story of what he went through and the trauma he endured and how he had to readjust to life afterward and the man didn't apologize because he said, I do not feel remorse. I don't regret having done those things, having developed those shows. But I affirmed what they went through. I listened to every bit of it and I understood that it was a human experience. And, but, and it was almost like, man, this guy is approaching it. it it's a fucked up performance art type thing but um in a way if you are affirming the humanness of it in the individual and even someone like nasubi says that in the long run they're grateful for this experience because it's uh in a boot camp sort of way shaped them into this motivational mindset that they have today that they can bring to others um this producer guy hangs his hat a little too much on that, almost as if to say that that was part of it. And it wasn't. You're, you're, you're a sick scumbag. Um, I, I guess the only thing is, even if it was an act, which maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but even if it was an act, um, you affirming the trauma that you put these people through and, you know, Telling them basically, I'm sorry that you went through this and I'm glad to see you're doing well. He didn't have to do that. 
And there's a lot of people that would never do that. So I feel like that's got to count for something. But in the interview, he explicitly states, hey, I didn't apologize. I don't regret any of this. And the weird cherry on top that makes it still kind of sick or like especially sick is that he literally uses the metaphor of a coach to an athlete. Said a coach isn't going to apologize for putting you through rigorous uh, drills, getting you ready for the game. But he will say, hey, I'm sorry you had to go through that. Isn't it great to be on the other side? Um, Yeah, again, fuck you. But him and Nasubi are on good terms now. How about that? He still holds no ill will. Nasubi said that he was pretty angry when he first heard from the guy. But then sat down with him, they had this exchange, and they came to a mutual agreement. Bygones be bygones. Okay, I said that was the last thing, but I remember we got to talk about the legality a little bit. Um, the show didn't last much longer. It ended in 2002. But the government didn't shut it down. Not that I know of. And it's 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 really crazy to say, but... So much of this, why Nasubi stuck with it and didn't, um, because I would have walked out a long time ago and just been a homeless man. Like even in, in South Korea, if I was in a different country and they did that to me on purpose, all the more reason for me to figure it out on my own. But, and so you could call him very dumb in one way and potentially ignorant or at least just foolish, but this, it all hinges on that uh pinnacle that what's the word for it the pinnacle that they strive for morally and ethically which is to do a good job to succeed to not give up to not let your people your family down um and that's what really drove him he wanted to succeed he didn't want to quit he didn't want to give up and it's just a shame that someone took advantage of such a potentially beautiful yeah and at its at its kernel it that is a beautiful mentality it's just a little naive um when it comes to situations like this he really should have given up he shouldn't have done this i don't think but i'm glad that he's better off for it thank god and as i understand it there was a point where they did sign some basic paperwork um but <clears throat> I, I don't it it's I, it sounds like that was midway through the process and that was loose at best. Like they didn't even need it at that point. I guess they were just covering some extra bases for the hell of it. Um, because what they did, it was the uh, the Japanese honor and on top of baiting him with fame and glory, as I said before. <clears throat> and then manipulation, you know, playing into that Japanese honor. And then doing things like bringing him out of the country. And obviously, uh, this should practically go without saying, but the man was beaten down psychologically and starved out. His brain was not working properly. It was deprived of all sorts of things. So if you're not a rebellious person, then naturally you're just going to go with it easier, I guess. But thank God he made it out. That's the story of Nasubi. Tamaoki Hamotsu. If Joseph Merrick the Elephant Man is a patron saint of Black Hoodie Alchemy, I think this guy is as well. Um, living proof that we can 
overcome existential horror at its worst. Aside from being physically abused um, in some like saw way or some, you know, angel of death, Nazi experimentation way, like that's all, that's almost as bad as it gets truly. And, and, and and let me just leave you with this. As I've said, uh, I want to reiterate, this was done quote unquote in the name of comedy and placed in the comedy sections, the reality TV sections of Japan. That's fucked. We're living in a dystopian Blade Runner nightmare, folks, but it doesn't always have to be bad. Let's just uh, take the good with the bad. Let's understand the bad so that we can uproot it, so that we can find the tools to overcome it uh, and and find the catharsis necessary to uh, deal with it or eradicate it or integrate it, whatever be the case. Uh, And let's use... Mr. Hamatsu, Mr. Nasubi, Nasubi rather, um, as a prime example of how to do so. Salute to you, Nasubi. Salute to everyone else out there. If you, you know, things have been kind of honestly a little frustrating for me lately. Um, the story of Nasubi is a clear reminder that it could be worse and that even if it is that bad, you can overcome it. Okay, I'm not trying to get on my Tony Robbins bullshit, but the proof is here, laid out before you. Uh, and go check out some of these uh, documentaries you can find about this dude online. They're well worth it. And that's it for now, folks. That is the real-life Japanese Truman Show of 1998 and the, the treacherous, tumultuous story of Nasubi. And this has been Black Hoodie Alchemy here on the Fringe FM. I am Anthony Tyler. I'll hear from you next week. Take it easy, everybody.